The following podcast contains explicit language, by which we mean potty talk. It's Friday, January 19th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, I think the Stormy Daniels story checks out. You know, Stormy Daniels, knee Stephanie Clifford, knee Peggy Peterson. Peggy Peterson, that was the named recipient of payment from the Delaware LLC Essential Consultants. (laughs) See, what you do is you start off with a normal human name like Stephanie Clifford. And if you want to go up a bit and connote glamour and stardom and hair extensions, you become Stormy Daniels. But if you want to get paid, actually paid, then you're Peggy Peterson of Essential Consultants. And the payment was made to a Mr. David Dennison. Oh, I get it. I get it. If you're going to arrange hush money, you don't want the payee to be listed as, oh, Vivian LaBouche, part of the Orgasma Group Unlimited. Oh, and the check will be made out by um, Hot Rod Humperdinck. Oh, Venmo, you know, Venmo's good. Venmo's good, too. I guess we should be saying, I don't believe it. The president, a porn star. Except everyone's reaction is, yeah, I totally believe it. Listen to how she talks about her encounter with Trump. Uh, This was her talking to In Touch. He kept showing me he was on the cover of a magazine that had just come out, and it was some sort of money magazine. He had it in the room, and he kept showing it to me, and I was like, dude, I know who you are. He was trying to sell me, I guess. The first time I met him, the first couple hours, he was very full of himself, like he was trying to impress me or something. But I do remember he kept talking about this magazine that he was on the cover of. Like, look at this magazine. Don't I look great on the cover? Oh, oh, that's not the Donald Trump we know. <laughs> Another point Stormy says about the, uh, the, the lovemaking. It was textbook generic. It wasn't like, oh my God, I love you. It wasn't like Fabio or anything. So here we have Donald Trump, who is a cartoon billionaire, a 12-year-old boy's idea of a billionaire, and a porn star, a uh, 12-year-old boy's idea of a lady, citing Fabio, a 12-year-old's idea of romantic. And I, I guess Stormy Daniels is a 12-year-old's idea of a cool-sounding name. Now, speaking of names, and here is the weird thing. There was a fellow porn actress who says that Trump and Stormy Daniels invited her to their hotel room. And this porn actress's name is Alana Evans. But I looked up Alana Evans' entire portfolio. Now, I looked up Alana Evans on Wikipedia, and Alana Evans' real name is Dawn Vanguard. She went from Dawn Vanguard, which is somewhat synonymous, but definitely cool and futuristic, from Dawn Vanguard to Alana Evans. And I can only think this harkens back to the days when you had to change your name in Hollywood, but there are a couple of famous actresses, the names we know them by now, I think are less cool and alluring than the names they were born with. Barbara Stanwyck, forget, put it out of your head, the fact that you know the name Barbara Stanwyck has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, for instance. She was born Ruby Stevens. And these days, I think if you're a girl who comes into Hollywood with big dreams and your name's Barbara Stanwyck, they say, why don't you change it to something cool like Ruby Stevens? Oh, the best one, though, Joan Crawford. That's a pretty plain Joan name, right? Yes, she did star in The Gorgeous Hussy, one of the greatest stories with Andrew Jackson as a main character. Gotta watch it. Joan Crawford's real name is Lucille Lassour, and she changed it to Joan Crawford. But Lucille Lassour 
It reeks of class, like a Trump property or Trump himself. Just this entire administration, really classy, like the golden toilet of presidencies. On the show today, I just shut down. I kind of shut down over the shutdown, and I, I try to let some stimulus slip through, but I'm really just shut down. But first, as we butt up against the one-year anniversary of Inauguration Day, when 345 million Americans descended on an unrainy day to Washington, D.C., we look back, and I am joined by two of the very best observers who I can think of, two of the top thinkers about the implications of the Trump presidency, two of the best people who happen to be in the studio this afternoon. No, no, seriously. They're the hosts of Trump cast. They really are the best. Setting up the interview was not easy. You'd think it was. You'd think we're all just milling about, break glass for Trump opinions. Not true. And we're going to talk about how the Trump presidency compares to their expectations beforehand and what's the best case scenario in terms of the Mueller investigation. All right, best case would be a candidate who in no way plays footsie with a hostile foreign power. I get that. But we'll talk about the best case scenario of a special prosecutor looking into the worst case presidency. Here now, Virginia and Jacob of Trumpcast. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. So we're uh, about a year of a Trump presidency. So what I've done is I've medicated with Robitussin, but also <laughs> I've been turning to a podcast called Trumpcast. Perhaps you know it. We aren't going to shy away from using terms like racism, fascism, or orange hair. But our goal here isn't to mock Trump, or not just to mock Trump. I want to try to better understand who this man really is, and why he's on his way to the Republican nomination, and maybe the White House. Trumpcast is hosted by Jamel Bowie, who's not here, but also Virginia Heffernan and Jacob Weisberg, who's, I guess, host emeritus. Because, Jacob, you've, you started Trumpcast during the Republican primary? I did, I think, in March of 2016. But doesn't emeritus mean you're retired? Yeah, well, you're you're the gray beard. I you're think the meritorious is it's the word you're looking the, for. The Oxford word <laughs> That's is OG. That. You are the <laughs> yes. So I f at first I wanted to convene this august panel to ask about where you think the Mueller investigation is going, should go, and what should be the limit. Insofar as the Trump cast is a means of analyzing Donald Trump and also figuring out the best thing to do about Donald Trump, what's the best thing that the Mueller investigation 
could bring us. How aggressive do you want Mueller to be were he to decide, okay, we are going to charge? Or would it be better if Trump were voted out of office based on what the citizens know about his actions? Well, Mueller, as you know, Mike, can't indict or prosecute Trump himself. He can only make a recommendation to Congress. And the only way Trump can be effectively prosecuted is to be impeached and and removed from office. But I think you're hitting on a really important point about special prosecutors and what have sometimes been independent prosecutors. There's a big whose ox is being gored factor. (laughs) And people on the other side of it, with Democrats in the case of Ken Starr or Republicans in the case of Mueller, tend to think these prosecutors have no checks on their power. They have open-ended authority. And there's something to that. He is known as a bloodthirsty prosecutor. I, I heard an amazing story about him in the 80s wanting to prosecute a Coke dealer so much that he shook down a various manicurists who were doing nothing but a little bit of cocaine. My actual issue is uh, something like what Masha Gessen argues, don't look to Russia to deliver us. Don't look to the Russian yep. pros- the Russia prosecution as a means of deliverance. I want Mueller to investigate forcefully, fully. However, I do think that there is this idea among people who know what a problem Trump is. Well, we need we need Russia. We need a prosecution from the Russia investigation. We need the Russia investigation to bear fruit to stop this guy. And then I worry and wonder if there is no finger pointing directly at him or if it only goes as far as, I don't know, pick your confidant, a son or a son-in-law, that'll be a huge letdown It will be seen as this huge win for Trump. Too much faith and trust has been put in the Mueller investigation because we don't really know what's there. Well, yeah, there's a very interesting argument raging that certain people are interested in the Russia, overly interested in the Russia investigation, as you say, to deliver us, but to deliver us from our own, you know, homegrown sins, particularly racism and things that you know, got Trump elected. So that if we can say, this is a do-over, we're not the divided and rapacious and hate-filled country that we seemed to be, this was just horrible Putin come in to destroy us, then we don't have to contend with immigration, with DACA, with all these other things. And we can go back and have the president that we were supposed to have all along, Oprah Winfrey. And, (laughs) um, And I'm not sure that that will happen. I've just been paying a lot of attention to Watergate. I'm actually spurred in part by uh, Leon Nafok's podcast, Slow Burn. I've been rereading all the president's men. And in the early months of Watergate, you know, Woodward and Bernstein were pursuing this story of the break-in and trying to tie it to the White House. Mm-hmm. They were trying to figure out if these burglars caught had a connection to the White House. And then maybe about four or five months into the investigation, they caught wind of the bigger picture. And the bigger picture was the Nixon White House was rotten to the core and had been involved in a campaign of sabotage, dirty tricks. The phrase that year was rat fucking. That was the you know the this, described phrase. Their, yeah. yeah, you know, the the effort to sabotage Democratic candidates. And it was comprehensive. And you realize the Watergate break-in was just one branch of a huge program that employed lots and lots of people and that the conspiracy was really real. And I think I'm not saying exactly the same thing is true with the R- Russian investigation, but every lead we've had has suggested that these people are so fundamentally corrupt and dishonest that they were open to every opportunity and every avenue to corrupt Mm -hmm. the election. So what will we prove in the end? Will we prove a certain kind of explicit collusion? I'm not sure. But I think we are opening up a trove of 
corruption and dishonesty that is going in all sorts of directions. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it's not looking for, you know, deliverance from Trump with some magic bullet. It's actually revealing the real character of Trump, his family, and the people around him. We also leave out that there's a national security element here that there wasn't to Watergate. So, you know, we expected a cyber attack would come in the form of disabling our power grids. You know, we were on the lookout for certain other kinds of hacks. You know, now we've undergone what looks pretty conclusively like a hack, not on the voting machines, but on our information space. And what is that thing? You know, not necessarily is the Trump campaign corrupt. I believe it is the Trump campaign and the Trump syndicate generally. And that is all uh, of extreme interest. They were brought into the core and thus susceptible, I think, to these hacks. But, you know, what do we make of these kind of hacks worldwide? And is it going to happen again? And what is this new kind of, you know, it's not excessive to call it cyber warfare? Well, I think that what you just laid out, what the what Watergate showed, has yet to be proved in the case of Trump and Russia. Another parallel point, if the thesis is that they're rotten to the core and they're bad for democracy and they don't understand our, nor- our norms, that has been proved about Trump and Russia. That has been tr- proved about the Trump administration several times over. But the extent of how far Watergate reached the Russia investigation so far doesn't go that far. Mike, you know what we still don't know about Watergate? If, if did the Nixon, president knew did Nixon it. know yeah. about the Watergate yes. break yes. in advance? So, you know, the, the last bit may be elusive, but at some point the picture is so clear. But the bigger point to me, what was what worked out societally about Watergate was that Republicans broke from Nixon. Was that the institutions of power said this cannot stand? Absent the Republican Speaker of the House actually saying, I will not serve as president because it would be undemocratic, which mm-hmm. actually went on during the Watergate era. And if people go down, not because they're, ele- they're voted out of office, it won't be as good a result. That's what I think. But you have one party saying, let's find out the truth. Yes. In a bipartisan fashion. Mm-hmm. You have the other party saying, let's not. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? essentially. Yeah. Right. They're saying, we already know Trump is innocent. Yeah. We know there's nothing to find, even though we haven't looked for it yet. I think that represents a kind of moral collapse in the Republican Party that really is at odds with Watergate. Now, in in 1973, not every Republican was perfect. And Nixon had a lot of knee-jerk defenders. And there were there were a lot of Republicans who tried to slow down and stall the investigations. And it's not this picture of the two parties getting together to restore democracy that some people might like to think. However, it is a party, a party with a conscience. What we're seeing now is the opposite. You know, we had some Republican Russia hawks. The one I'm remembering is Tom Nichols. The part of the investigation they're most interested in, and I might put myself in this category, is the It's always called a 9-11 style commission to investigate the Russia hacks, just the Russia Mm -hmm. hack of democracy. Trump's part or not in it as being a willing puppet, a useful idiot, say he's an active colluder. We don't care. We've been humiliated on the world stage by a hostile foreign power. Putin thinks he owns us in some way. How did this happen and how can we prevent it from happening here again and abroad? In your year or year plus of hosting Trumpcast, what did you expect to happen that hasn't happened? Well, I expected him to lose the election. Sure. <laughs> Sadly, that didn't happen. You know, the, the the panic I had about continuing the show was, you know, partly just like the nightmare of Trump being in office. But it was also that he's such a fundamentally boring man. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. You know, I think 
great politicians usually have some kind of great mystery about what makes them tick. Or depth. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Nixon is a fascinating yeah. character. Yeah. You can talk about Nixon psychology Layers. all day. Yes. Reagan is a great mystery. I read a book partly about the Reagan mystery. Obama uh, yeah. is a fascinating, deep character. Trump is a malignant narcissist, 100% on the surface. If you've you know read one book about him, you understand him as well as anybody ever needs to understand him. There's no mystery to propel the story. And I was worried it was going to get boring and that I was going to get bored with it. But that hasn't happened, partly because Trumpism is such a fascinating phenomenon and partly mm. because these investigations and trying to understand, you know, the different pieces of Trump's business and how it worked in terms of money laundering and what's happening with what Trump is doing on, on race and where is the Republican Party on using race as a populist rallying point. I mean, there's sort of endless interesting things to talk to yes. about Trump that are not the question of, gee, what makes him tick? Have you been surprised with how ineffective he has been in terms of, you know, real accomplishments as opposed to, hey, let's not give short shrift to the fact that the EPA is rewriting all its rules and that there are raids going on in 7-Elevens, but really pretty ineffective and I think bedeviled by his own inexpertise. Has that surprised you? I think that's really a mixed picture. I think he has been very effective in passing legislation, obviously, he, although he has got one really big thing, which is the, the tax bill, which is going to have all sorts of long-term consequences that are going to be very serious. But I think the much bigger impact has been at the regulatory level. And there, I think, I probably underestimated him, and I think a lot of people did because we thought he was so lazy and undisciplined and uninterested and what happened in most of the government that he wasn't going to sort of bother to, to implement a program. But I think what's happened is that people who do care and do know what goes on at these agencies have stepped in and they've cleaned house at these places. And of course, you know, it's hell to stay in the Foreign Service or at the EPA if you're if you're a holdover, even if you're a civil servant who shouldn't have to leave when there's a new new president. And I think he at the at the regulatory and administrative level, he's having a tremendous impact. Mm. A lot of it is reversible because what isn't passed by law can be reversed without passing a law. But that's going to be a function and part of how long he stays in office. Here's my last question. Do you think he's done anything right? Anything that <laughs> you deserves credit? You were just credit? with that pewter lining. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you one. I'll give you one. Maybe. Okay. I've been reading the Grant biography and I watched uh, Darkest Hour last night. In war, sometimes we've got to take the gloves off. And it does seem that, well, it is true that we've made major gains against ISIS. And it is also true, and this is usually painted as a criticism, that it's come at the cost of, you know, civilian lives. And that was that was a calculus that Barack Obama was aware of. And he'd rather save civilian lives than just go nuts rooting out ISIS. But ISIS has been rooted out. Maybe it's not worth it. Maybe it's not worth the costs. And not all of it is because of stuff that Trump wanted. But it does seem like if you ask Jim Mattis, just based on the prosecution of the war against ISIS, do you prefer the Trump strategy or the Obama strategy? I think Mattis would say the Trump strategy, and it has one. So maybe we give him credit there. But anyway, any that's mine. That's mine. Maybe one. I, I have one. I mean, I absolutely have one. I think that, you know, let's imagine if Hillary had won, just the margin had been flipped and she'd been mm -hmm. a little bit on top. Yeah. 
we would, you know, have all these um, bugs in the system, you know, we wouldn't have looked into the compromised information space. We would have thought of Breitbart as a joke. We would have thought we wouldn't have paid attention to the base. And we wouldn't have addressed the extent of the Russian hack and, and uh, you know, and corruption. And we wouldn't have thought of this time as we wouldn't have brought out all this reformist spirit. You know, we're about to the anniversary of the World Historical Women's March, the greatest march in world history. Um, and uh, there's going to be another march. And, you know, this first, first time activism, we don't talk about it a lot on the show, but it is pretty astounding to have people engaged uh, in civic life in a way they never have been just because, you know, of the accident of this, I think, corrupt politician rising to the Oval Office. Maybe a little backhanded this one, but I'm glad that he's blown up the coziness between the White House press corps and the White House. I think some of that will last. I mean, uh-huh. I'm glad he destroyed the White House Correspondents' Dinner, mm-hmm. which is a horrifying event. I'm glad that people don't suck up to get invitations to the White House Christmas mm-hmm. party. All that stuff where they're kind of this all this coziness around that relationship Um That's more the default, and I kind of think we won't go back to that in the same way after Trump. I'll give you another one. I'm glad Colbert is doing better than Fallon. (laughs) Interesting, (laughs) interesting. Yeah, it's not worth it. I mean, I trade that situation for you know Trump not being president, definitely. Yeah. I mean, how about the Me Too movement? I mean, I think Trump has produced Mm -hmm. a lot of consequences that are good things happening in the country right now, but you can't credit him with them. Their backlashes and responses to Trump. This has also been sort of like a real-time stress test for our institutions and professional people within government. And they've done well, I think. They've acquitted themselves well, the professionals in the State Department or the Pentagon or even, you know, administrators on a state level. Administrative state, yes. Congress, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. Yep. Jacob Weisberg, Virginia Heffernan. Along with Jamel Bowie, they host a podcast that I re- recommend. It is called Trumpcast. Thank you all very much. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. The Gist presents One Joke Theater. One joke theater. Here we go to West Africa. Our guide is the BBC. First, in the West African country of Guinea, people, uh, police, sorry, have arrested a woman who claims to have the powers to make other women pregnant by giving them special herbs. Hi, I'm Herb Backer. And I'm Herb Singare. And we are, let's just say, in certain ways, special Special herbs. herbs. Okay, no, no, we're out. We are out. I'm just being an idiot. But you know that. And the reason that you know that, that wasn't, that wasn't a high-minded joke, was it? No, no. But there's a reason I'm able to make that joke. Privilege. No, I, I am privileged. I'll be honest. I'm privileged in a way to have this show, to have the producers I have who worked hard to put that little bit together, to have your ears. And there is a direct line to the privilege of me having the show and talking about these issues and doing one joke theater, there's a direct line between that casting backwards to the government shutdown of 2013. So in 2013, the government was then, as well as I talk, looks like now, is going to be shut down. So Slate Podcasts, which was hand-cranked at the time, very artisanal, in a first-of-its-kind experiment, 
convened what they called at the time shutdown specials, wherein David Plotz, who was then, as he still is, the host of the Slate political gab fest, but he was also the editor-in-chief of Slate at the time. David Plotz hosted this show every day, and he'd have on special guests, Slate people, outside experts, on for 16 days to discuss the shutdown. This is a gab fest extra, day 14 of the 2013 government shutdown. It's Monday, October 14th. I'm Slate editor David Plotz here in our D.C. studio. Joining me by phone is Slate's chief political correspondent, John Dickerson. Hello, John. Hello, David. It is day 14 of the shutdown, John. Is it, are we in the home stretch? Listeners were riveted. I think it set some sort of record for Slate podcasts. And this gave the then Slate podcast czar, Andy Bowers, confidence to act on something he always suspected, that the world of podcasting would support a daily show. The shutdown specials were a case study. Cut to a few months later, Slate hires this guy to do the job. May 2014, we debut. And I have to tell you, there was some question when the show, when the gist first started, people said, yes, perhaps there can be a daily news show. But without the riveting urgency of a government shutdown, will people listen? Well, they would listen. They did listen. It was riveting, and it is not normal. Let us not forget that. Government shutdowns are not normal. But they're not normal in a way that we expect a dysfunctional government like the one we have to be not normal. Here, listen to Mick Mulvaney, the first ever guy in government history to take a job running a major federal agency while also running another major federal agency. He's now best known as the head of the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, In 2013, just by way of context, he was a member of the Shutdown Caucus. And today, he was asked and delivered. He he described in plain terms what this shutdown really meant. Again, the House has passed a bill. Okay, the Senate has a couple different choices. They could not take it up. This is basic civics, right? Either they take it up and pass it, take it up and don't pass it, or they change it and send it back to the House. That is all true. What he said is all true. And in a way, the insanity we're being visited upon seems normal. Well, it seems familiar. The kind of dysfunction, like I said, that we expect. It's not jarring. The markets aren't moving. They're not convulsing. And dare I say, there's probably not at this moment a market for a never-ending series of shutdown specials from Slate. But it's only because Captain Crazy Pants steers the ship of state that all previous outings seem just like calm seas. There is this phrase that I always find amusing. And the phrase is, in a perfect world. It is almost never used correctly. Just today, they talked about an ex-CIA operative who was sentenced to jail. And the judge, Leonie Brinkema, said, in a perfect world, you'd only have direct evidence, but many times that's not the case in a criminal case. We have very powerful circumstantial evidence. So this is, this is how perfect the world is, that there's a CIA operative who had information about mismanagement of classified programs about Iran, had to go to the press to blow the whistle on these classified programs, and that in doing so, caught himself up in a legal snare and is now serving in jail. That we have an enemy like Iran, that we have press shield laws that don't work, that we have this guy in jail. That's how perfect the world is. A couple other examples, just from today's news. Uh, Someone writing about Boston College men's hockey in a perfect world. I'd like to see BC's penalties per game drop down to about three or four. Guy, come on. You can can do better. There are lower numbers than that, you know. Here's Jill Filipovich. She was writing in The Guardian, I think. And she was writing about that young woman who went on the date with Aziz Ansari and did not like it and did not go well. 
in the story, her name was Grace, and Filipovich writes, in a perfect world, Grace would have walked out the door. Really? A world so perfect that Aziz Ansari gets you naked, and then he gets handsy, and then you get all icky, and then you're like, this is an unsatisfying sexual liaison, I'm leaving. And then afterwards you ask her, hey, how was your evening, Grace? Of course she'd answer, perfect. It was perfect. I live in a perfect world. Another great one. In a perfect world, the United States could eventually start to negotiate an agreement where North Korea caps its nuclear programs. I I know several ways that scenario is imperfect. And finally, in a perfect world, the president would have used his social media profile to calm frayed nerves the day Hawaii freaked out over nuclear scare. Maybe we could go one step back and make a world so, I'm not even going to say so perfect as to not have nuclear weapons, just so perfect as the guy didn't press yes, send a real alert, and also confirm the pop-up button. You sure you want to send this alert? That could be a more perfect world. So that last part about the president brings me to the equivalent that we say today, under a normal president or under a normal presidency. Here's an example I read. Trump's Pocahontas remark, this was to the Navajo code talkers, Trump's Pocahontas remark would have been a career-ending scandal under a normal president. Really, would a normal president ever think that she's Pocahontas? Would a normal president ever start saying that she's Pocahontas? Would a normal president engender crowds that cheer and laugh as he says Pocahontas? We get up to the point where he wouldn't say it in front of the Navajo code talkers. That's the amount of normality we ask for. Another example, under a normal presidency, denigrating a gold star mother is a news story And the media would have the obligation to cover it with unending interest and ferocity. Under a normal presidency, a gold star mother would not be denigrated. That's the thing that's going on with the whole under a normal presidency thing. It's such an outrageous impossibility that we're asked to fathom that we don't even go to the root cause. We talk about, wow, how is this craziness being covered under a normal presidency? Well, it's not a normal presidency. It's very, very out of the ordinary. And the focus shouldn't be on how we cover this abnormality. It should be the abnormality to begin with. We can't really correctly assess how this bizarre, insane abnormality would be covered in normal times because we're not in normal times. It's like our reactions to stimuli are predictable because the stimuli falls within a bound of normality. There's bright lights, we shield our eyes. There's a noisome odor, we might gag. Those are reflexes. But if the light is always blinding all the time, or if the odor just permeates the air, we can't really assume that we'd react how we normally assume without this stuff going on. Stormy Daniels, during a normal presidency, we'd call him to account, not normal. An avoidable shutdown, being leaned into, again, not normal. The reaction of the reporting on it is not the place to point the finger. It's how unnormal this whole thing is. I heard this story, I think it was the Congo War. So during the ravages of the war, they kept losing forest. And so animals, megafauna in Africa, would encroach further and further into the cities until you would see lions and rhinos walking first in the outskirts of town and then just in town itself. And so I think it was a war reporter went there and remarked to her host, you know, that's not normal. That's a rhino in my backyard. That's not normal. And the Congolese person said, you know, it's hard to remember what normal is. I think we're all 
the war-torn Congolese. And Trump's a peripatetic hippo. It's not only not normal to find him in our backyard, it takes a few steps to remember how he got here in the first place. And that's it for today's show. In a perfect world, just producer Pierre Biennemay's Honda Accord would get like 34 miles per gallon and have a second cup holder. Just senior producer Mary Wilson in a perfect world would be just senior supervising producer. In a perfect world, Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, would not have to say the whole executive producer of Slate Podcast part. People would just know, like with Spielberg or the Pope. The gist... In a perfect world, I wouldn't have to bring you a podcast about these constant abuses of power and corruption and poor governance. I would just sing songs and tell jokes about herbs, thus making your world that much less perfect. Oomperoo, deperoo, duperoo, and thanks for listening.